Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. WFAN and WFAN-FM New York on radio.com sports station. everybody it's Bob Salter hopefully you have some nice plans for this holiday weekend and hopefully there's a bit of time during the course of the weekend to also observe the fact that there are many people who have given their lives in service for the lives that we leave today. This is Memorial Day weekend, after all. Sometimes we have a tendency to forget um, exactly what that is all about. It's about something more than just an occasion to go shopping, although plenty of people will do some of that, too. Well, we have a busy program this morning, and I'm glad to see that um, we are... Joined in hour one of our program by a guest who has spoken with us previously. We've always had very good discussions with him. His name is Fred Watts. Fred is executive director of the Police Athletic League, PAL. And as you know from previous discussions on this program, I have a particular fondness for uh, PAL, um, having had the experience of being part of PAL growing up myself. In New Jersey, um, and some of my, I guess, formative experiences being associated with the Police Athletic League. Um, Fred Watts, in his background, law degree from Columbia Law School, spent more than 30 years at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. His father was a police officer in Harlem for 20 years. It's nice to have you join us again on our program. Good morning, Fred. Well, thank you for having me. The Police Athletic League, to those... And I know this is a shocker for you as well as me. There may be somebody who has no idea what the Police Athletic League is all about. How do you describe it? Well, we are an independent nonprofit that uh, focuses on youth development from ages 2 all the way up to 21. We work very closely with the police department, with the New York City Police Department, um, but we employ both their uh, knowledge and skill with our uh, knowledge of youth development and working with children with the hope that we both develop them as good uh, people and also that the police department and the community it serves uh, develops a uh, good working relationship. How challenging is that in 2019 to maintain that good working relationship? Uh, it's a challenge, um, but it's uh, not unmanageable 
but it takes constant work. Um, you know, we we read the paper and we watch television. We see unfortunate incidents uh, throughout the country, and it sort of sometimes shakes people's faith. Um, but our goal is to continue to work on this relationship, and I think we've had some good success with the police uh, have a very healthy uh, respect of the community and the community of the police. So it is uh, a, a relationship that takes constant attention, I guess, like all relationships. But um, but we think we can we have an avenue for for success. And in terms of the history of PAL, when did it start? Uh, it actually started over a hundred years ago, uh, 1914. Uh, the police athletic league was developed within the police department as part of the New York City Police Department. And in the 1940s, uh, the decision was made to break the two apart. We work very closely together, so I break apart maybe is too strong. But um, the uh, PAL became independent of the police department. But as I said, we work very closely together. Now, you've said that a couple of different times. In what ways? Uh, in what way do we work together? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a variety of ways. Let's, uh, at, at its core, what we try to do is, in all of our programs, we try to make sure that the young people are introduced to police officers in sort of a positive and nurturing environment. So um, that could be one of the big ways we do it is through sports. So we have... Um, you know, competitive sports, uh, flag football, basketball, volleyball, where the young people either are coached by police officers or as they get older, they play with uh, police officers on the same team. So that's one big way they work together. Um, in addition, they work together so in our centers where we have after-school programs and other programs where the police officers will just come by and, uh, you know, they will participate in whether it's after-school homework or reading assignments or so forth. Um, so we do things like that. One of the exciting uh, new programs we have is an acting program where the young people actually are learning, uh, you know, various disciplines within acting and performing arts. And we've actually developed a chorus where the police officers and uh, uh, the teenagers um, uh, sing in a chorus. Uh, and they've had some really sort of spectacular performances. And, and not only is it just, you know, good fun, but it is a great way for people to really get to know each other, learn about each other, and um, develop these really lasting relationships. How did the acting program come about? Well, it started with, it was the passion of one of our board members, Tony Danza, who's a well-known actor, Mm -hmm. uh, and he joined our board, and he felt that we, um, that our, the work of PAL could be furthered by, um, by, you know, creating that uh, program. So he, uh, along with some uh, consultants and staff, has really developed, uh, it's really Tony Danza's passion, and he's become very personally involved in it, and it has really blossomed, where uh, young people from throughout the city, they we have various components of this program. I actually recently went to their, they have a graduation at the end of the year, which was really uh, inspiring. They learn about song, they learn about dance, they learn about, um, you know, improvisation, improvisation, and all in the process, they're learning the skills that will help them in life, in addition to just in the performing arts, and we've coupled it with education, so the kids are going on 
trips uh, to learn about historical sites. They're, they're going on college trips to learn how they could sort of incorporate their passion in performing arts into furthering their education. So it starts with the vision and passion of Tony Danza, and um, we've tried to pick up um, and, and follow his lead, and it has been highly successful. You know, as you're saying that, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, this is New York City. I mean, there's so many resources in terms of the acting community that it would seem you'd, it would be a natural uh, match, you know, to be able to tap into and could provide quite the experience for this young people. Absolutely. We've, um, because of uh, both Tony's connections and our, you know, as you say, our, the location, mm-hmm. uh, the kids have been able to go to plays. They have, um, you know, sort of practiced in local workshops. Uh, local working artists have come to teach them. Uh, I went to a play with a group of young people where the cast, after the play, sat with the young people, talked to them about different things, not only just about performance, but just about their experience as young people in New York City. So it has really been, um, you know, we are well positioned in New York City to take advantage of all of the, uh, you know, the richness it offers. And uh, the, uh, you know, our teens have really uh, have taken to it. So it's been a great, um, we hoped only to just grow it more and more. How did the young people react when the cast members talked to them in that fashion? Well, you know, I'll tell you a sort of interesting story. So we were we were at a play. The cast members, um, uh, you know, were meeting with the children. Well, not children. They're really, you know, sort of young adults, you know, late teens, uh, with them. And they were very excited, but they were sort of interested in, you know, kind of little things. There was one actress who was from England, um, but was affecting a accent of an American Southerner, and they just you know, were amazed that the person was so good at it. So it was just from the technical skills and also just their openness to want to, you know, interact with them. So this, the, the play ends and we have this sit down, uh, with the, with, with the, um, with the cast and it had, it went so late, uh, that we actually had to start to take, cause some of the people were from, you know, uh, from Queens. They were from Brooklyn. They, it was a school night. They had to get back home. And, uh, but, but it was going long. And the reason why it was going long was because it was just so fascinating and because the cast was so giving. So, uh, it was really a, uh, it, it was really a great experience. You know, I'm also thinking, you know, you mentioned the theater, I think, also of like the television um, industry, the different shows that are shot in various parts of uh, New York City. You know, think of the old, um, what was it, Kaufman Astoria Studios, where WFAN used to be located in Queens. Yes. And, you know, there's a, a history, a legacy of TV shows, movies that were shot there. You know, a place like that probably would be open to an idea of a partnership as well, too. Absolutely. And and the hope also is not only people, obviously, in front of the camera, but, again, expand young people's minds if you have a technical ex- uh, expertise, if you're interested in photography or filmmaking. Um, we really try to expose uh, you know, our participants to a wide array of experiences that they otherwise would never have had, and with the hope of, you know, sort of starting to dream about what their lives could be like doing a variety of different things. That's the whole trick, is to get people to realize that they don't necessarily 
have to, if they want to work in the broadcast industry, they don't necessarily have to be in front of a camera or in front of a microphone to make a significant contribution uh, That's right. in terms of their work. We're talking with Fred Watts on our program. He's executive director of Police Athletic League. Uh, very quickly, website for PAL? Sure. It's www.palnyc.org. PALNYC.org. More with Fred as we continue on our program on The Fan. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. This is Bob Solter. We're talking with Fred Watts, who's executive director of the Police Athletic League in this first hour of our program this morning. By the way, if you want to join us in discussion, um, we've had that happen before with folks who've maybe they've had an experience with PAL in um, their background, want to ask a question of Fred, 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. One of the things that I wanted to follow on um, that you had mentioned in this discussion, the early portion of our discussion, is talking you know, about this idea of the um, things that are offered for uh, young New Yorkers. You, know, you talked a little bit about the idea of some of the sports um, programs that are offered. One of the areas that comes up in discussion, especially at this time of the year, and I know this goes way back in the history of PAL, I want to talk about right now, and that is play streets. Can you explain what those are? Sure. So um, uh, PAL, actually, the the notion of PAL started with the play street program, which is, so way back when, um, the it was decided that kids needed more open spaces to play. So vacant lots and actual streets, regular you know, streets that um, were used for travel, were kind of cordoned, cleaned up and cordoned off so that they could, um, uh, so the kids could play. And they would bring, you know, have officers and so forth to, um, you know, sort of uh, supervise the activity. Well, that basic concept we've carried through for over a hundred years. So what we have now uh, in terms of play streets is we focus more on uh, public spaces like um, in public housing or parks, but also occasionally on actual streets where we bring in staff, we bring in equipment, games, and we essentially bring sort of a summer camp, kind of a drop-in camp experience but right into your neighborhood. And it's a, sort of a more casual experience, but the great part about it is that it's safe, it's supervised. Um, if we're in a park, we might run a tournament or something like that. We'll have, uh, occasionally we'll have some kind of arts activities. But the whole focus is, is that you can sort of just walk down from your, your apartment and right into your neighborhood and participate in uh, you know, sort of a good, safe summer activity. Well, you know, that's the whole idea is the convenience of this, too. I mean, you know, to be able to bring this into a neighborhood in Brooklyn or the Bronx, this is an area where you know, maybe that young New Yorker has never left. That's exactly right. And and also the... Um uh, we also, you know, we've been talking a lot about the uh, police officers. We try to have police officers interact with kids in the Play Street program, so they'll just stop by, they'll play, they'll, you know, talk to the kids about whatever their, uh, their concerns are. And um, it really, we found, is sort of a traditional but tried-and-true way to 
really just involve people in, um, you know, sort of good activities. We try to give them information. We have nutrition um, sort of uh, workshops there. They have fitness challenges. You know, just we just try to mix it up and, and, and make it fun for uh, the kids in the neighborhood. What about the day camps, the pal runs? So the Play Streets is a more kind of free-flowing drop-in uh, situation. Our day camps, we have, I believe this summer, we'll have 20 day camps throughout the city. And there are more... Um, uh, I don't say, when I say formal, I just you know more of a traditional sense. The kids get there at a certain hour, typically pretty early, like around eight o'clock. They get breakfast. Um, they have various activities. They could have local trips. They have games within the centers and so forth. They get lunch. Um, it's a really a full day of um, activity. And and again, we do try to get them out. Uh, we, so we uh, will go on a local trip, maybe to a museum or to a park or um, anything we can do to kind of get kids to both see the city, have a good uh, summer experience. We do try to put a little education in there. We expose them to different, um, you know, typically there's a theme during the year um, where we expose them to information about a different part of the world or a different culture, and then they have a big celebration at the end of the year. So that's a more um, formal setting. Um, but when I say formal, I, I, I simply mean that it's more structured, um, uh, where kids come each day. And I should emphasize with all the programs we've been talking about, they're all free of charge. So when you come to this camp, you're paying not one cent to go to camp, similarly with the Play Streets and our after-school programs. And it's just really a wonderful opportunity for people free of charge to, to take advantage of all these experiences. Now, the Cops and Kids program, is that year-round? Yes, we do different types of activities throughout the year. So um, right now I know we're starting a, um, uh, a baseball program where the police officers will uh, be involved. And there's one particular thing we're excited about, and it's, it's just a pilot at this point, but we're actually starting a lacrosse program in uptown Manhattan where the police officers, the, the, the NYPD has a, its own lacrosse program, and so where officers, you know, play uh, in a lacrosse league, but they have uh, brought that to one of our centers. So we're working with the police to introduce lacrosse to a neighborhood uh, uptown Manhattan, and I really, I really think that's going to uh, uh, take off because uh, lacrosse, which I know a little bit about, not a whole lot, but. Um, it's just a sort of an action-packed sport, and um, it's uh, for a lot of young kids in the city. It's a fairly new uh, experience, and I really think it's a great opportunity to introduce young people to something new, uh, something sort of athletic, and to um, expose them to in a positive experience with police officers. So we're really excited about that. Okay. First of all, that shocked me hearing that the New York City Police Department has a lacrosse program. <laughs> I was I, a little surprised, I, I, too. <laughs> I had, had no idea, but I know lacrosse is really, really big, and I think that's a great idea. Now, you say this is in Uptown? Yeah, we're, it's, it's in Harlem in the, uh, in the uh, Polo Grounds houses. Mm -hmm. In that area, we, um, um, 
we just focused on that particular place for a variety of reasons, but we're really hopeful it's going to take off. And, and you know, lacrosse is sort of big in pockets in the tri-state area, but some of those offices are from those pockets, whether it's, you know, Hempstead, Long Island, or places in Jersey um, where lacrosse is bigger than in some other places. But 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 again, you get those officers, and um, and the officers are very giving, and so um, we really hope that'll that'll take off. You know, the officers have a lot. Of, they have a football team, they have a hockey team, they 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 do a lot on their own as well in the in the sports world. So if we can borrow their expertise, we're really excited about that. What do they say they get out of it? So I think the officers, you know, that's the. I'm 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 glad you point that out because we often think of you know what. That the community needs to learn about the officers, and that's true. But the officers also need to and want to learn about the community. And what I think the officers get out of it from the people that I, uh, the officers that I speak to, is number one, it kind of demystifies, uh, you know, the officer. Let's say the officer grew up in Westchester or, or grew up even in Staten Island, and now they're patrolling a place in Brooklyn or in Manhattan, and um, so I think it kind of demystifies the community, and it also educates the officers about what the community is most interested in and what they want from the officers. So I think it gives the officer that information and that confidence to, you know, to really serve the community in the best way. And, you know, some of the experiences I've seen with these officers, whether it's in the sports context or in the performing arts context, they keep coming back because they just plain enjoy it. They enjoy being with the kids. They enjoy the experience. And so they both learn for their their jobs, you know, the, about service. But I think they also just enjoy the experience of getting to know uh, people in the community. And, and I should also emphasize that, you know, many of these officers are from the very communities that they're serving. So they, they feel, um, I feel quite gratified that, you know, I grew up in this neighborhood and now I'm able to kind of give something positive to that neighborhood. So for all those uh, reasons, I think the officers really do get a tremendous amount out of it. 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan. You want to join us in discussion with Fred Watts. He's executive director of Police Athletic League and he's our guest this hour of our program and um, sharing a lot of information. When we talk about um, PAL and the work of the Police Athletic League, I also would be remiss if I didn't ask you about um, alumni and I guess the connection with alumni do do they keep in touch do, are you able to track some of their progress um they do we have not done as good a job as i would like to and we're really going to try to use social media and outreach to to do an even better job um we had a one really fascinating experience recently where an admiral in the United States Navy, maybe uh, relevant to Memorial Day uh, weekend. So an admiral from in the United States Navy who grew up in Brooklyn, um, went to Brooklyn Tech, uh, he reaches out to us out of the blue and says, you know, I'm going to be in New York City and I would like to speak to some PAL kids. I, the admiral, his name was Admiral Creedy, I was a PAL kid back in the, I guess it would be in the 1970s. And he came to a center. And um, he actually met the kids and answered questions with them. And he actually also uh, was hosted by our chairman, Mr. Morgenthau, 
Robert Morgenthau, who was also a veteran of the World War II in the United States Navy. And so we had this wonderful experience where the teens were talking to uh, two uh, veterans, one currently serving, one veteran, and they were also, you know, talking to a former pal kid from Brooklyn who was talking about his experience growing up in Brooklyn in the 70s, I guess, probably 60s, 70s, and um, and then what it was like to, to, to be an officer in the U.S. Navy. And Admiral, I learned, is a very, he's a vice admiral. It's an extremely high and responsible position, and it was really a great chance to sort of see, you know, he started out in Brooklyn as a pal kid, and now he's a, you know, a big shot in the Navy. It was really a uh, very gratifying to see, and the kids really took to him. It was really wonderful to see him give back and them respond to him, and he was a pal alum. And we were, were really trying hard to sort of identify and find more and more people who, you know, were positively affected by PAL and hopefully, uh, you know, keep us going for another hundred years. You know, you think of, first of all, the things that he was sharing and, you know, the inspiration that that could provide. But I was also thinking, as you were saying that, one never knows, you know, his story of his journey uh, then and now literally could provide a career inspiration for some of the young people he was speaking with. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that was sort of, I found amusing was they were looking, um, a couple of the kids asked about, you know, sort of how did he get, he went to the United States Naval Academy. How did he, what made him decide to do that? How did he, they were looking for kind of a magical, you know, what made him know that's what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And he had a very simple answer. He said, Look, I was in high school. We didn't have a, our family didn't have a lot of money, and the Naval Academy offered a free college education. <laughs> he said that it was as simple as that. And so, it, it, it what I thought was kind of I don't know, sort of just interesting to me was that he, you know, the kids were looking for. In other words, I think the kids were making it more complicated. You know, they were they were exactly analyzing it in a way, and and I and I think the simplicity of his you know, sort of approach, and then how he learned to, you know, really enjoy and become satisfied by his career. Um, I don't know, I thought gave a little comfort to people who realized maybe you don't have to figure it out quite so deeply. Just, you know, take the opportunities as they come and, 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 and then take the best advantage of them. Fred Watts, who's executive director of the Police Athletic League, is our guest this hour of our program on the Fed. It's Sunday morning on the Fed. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Fred Watts on our program. Fred is executive director of the Police Athletic League. PAL, um, by the way, on the web at PALNYC. That's P-A-L-N-Y-C. That's all as one word, dot O-R-G. And he's uh, sharing information with us about the work of the uh, organization. What I said we will do as well is to try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us, because we have people who have had experiences where you've been involved with Police Athletic League at some point in your lifetime. Perhaps you want to share some of that with us in the discussion. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. And let's go to the phone to Steve in Manhattan, who has joined us. Steve, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Right, gentlemen, and first, let's everyone remember that Memorial Day is uh, more than a burger and a brew. Let's remember that. And uh, PLA is, is great. People should know they can contribute. You know, they can make contributions, probably tax deductible. It's a, it's a good organization. It puts kids 
I say, on the ball field or on the court or anywhere. It helps them out. And I think it's tremendous. I also think, I mean, in New York City, I see so many soccer fields being built. I have no problem with that. But also, let's, let's remember baseball, too. Let's take care of some of these baseball fields. There are a lot of people in this audience. It might be hard to believe. There are millionaires in this audience. Break open the South. Help the PLA because it's a great organization. The guys are doing a great job. Thank, thank you very much for your call and your thoughts this morning, Steve. Fred, want to respond to what Steve had to say? Well, I, I, I very much appreciate Steve's call, and I would. Um, he mentioned baseball. You know, as a kid growing up, I played a lot of baseball, and um, it, 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 we've tried to kind of it, it's, it's sort of gone away a bit. And I think Steve is right. We're, we're trying to bring it back, and 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 I would say that um, Major League Baseball has a program that we've been able to be get involved in to try to bring a little more baseball to uh, some of the young people in the city. So I think Steve hit it right on the head. I appreciate his support, and we are trying to do a little more with baseball, and Major League Baseball has been helping out, so that's really good. When you talk about the organization and talk about funding, all right, which Steve also alluded to, how tricky a situation is that? Well, we get um, we do get funding from the uh, 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 government sources. Uh, the city supports a lot of our after-school programs, and um, but but that funding is not enough to to kind of bring a full program to uh, the young people. So we do a lot of private fundraising, and we um, we hold events, and we you know we uh, make applications to private funders, and people have been very generous, but. Um, we continue to kind of push that. Uh, big donors, small donors, uh, large companies, small companies, um, we really just try to spread the word on the good work we're doing and how it helps us all to do that work. And uh, it, it does take a, an aggressive fundraising effort to bring these programs to the, uh, to the people, uh, to the kids. And as I said, because uh, we want the programs to be free, um, we really are quite aggressive in our fundraising. And, you know, you mentioned social media earlier. How is social media or how has social media, I guess, changed the way in which PAL operates? Well, um, you know, I'm sort of a little more of an old-timer, so the social media is something that I had to learn, and, you know, I have kids in their 20s, my own children who are, you know, live on social media. And so what I've seen in, the, you know, not only in my home but at PAL is that people acquire their information now uh, less from the old newspaper and more from Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And so we've had to go, if, you, if we want to share our story, we have to share it where people are you know, are reading. And so, you know, we have a Twitter feed and we, we try to, you know, be very active, uh, in social media and, um, and the way we get our story out and the way, quite frankly, we tell them about our programs is, uh, quite often, not only through our website, but through, uh, Facebook, Twitter, um, and ways to kind of really connect with, uh, people. We also, um, we're, we're excited to kind of get this started, we are developing an app so that the people who's the, the parents of the children in programs can kind of use the app to learn about, you know, program schedule and, you know, if it's a snow day and um, uh, sort of things like that. So social media is really kind of where it's all happening for people and we want to be where people are getting their information. 
And Fred, you know, I, I, I can identify with you because you know, I think back to um, the experience of tablets. And, you know, tablets either were something that you took with medicine or you, you wrote on with a pen. Uh, and now it's a completely different experience, obviously, too. That's right. Uh, when we talk about, because you used the term respect earlier. And, you know, that's really at the core of a lot of pals' work with cops and kids. And I, I guess encouraging the respect is one thing. Um, and encouraging the respect both ways as well in that relationship is another. But is it tricky also making that sort of a lifetime experience? Yeah, I think it is because, you know, we, um, you know, in our daily lives, you, you know, you should, the hope is you give somebody a chance, you know, to kind of demonstrate who they are. But, but, but you also, um, you take in new information. So, uh, you know, I might meet somebody at work and really like them and respect them. And then on a particular day, you know, maybe they do something I don't like. And so then I, ch- I challenge my, my first positive feeling. Well, it's true for all of us in all experiences. And so I think it's, um, it, I think in our programs, the, the idea that we can give people repeated chances to kind of demonstrate their good intentions is important. And I also think that one of our big challenges and really difficult, I think, from the police officer standpoint is you could be a police officer doing wonderful, wonderful work in, let's just say, Queens, and then turn on the TV and someplace in, you know, a thousand miles away, a police officer does a bad thing. Well, you, the officer sitting there in Queens, who's you know done nothing but a good job, now has to answer for a you know somebody doing a bad job a thousand miles away because the officers tend to get lumped into one category, and so it so you have to not only earn respect but constantly reassure people that you are you know your intentions are good, you really are there to serve. So it is a um, a challenge. But again, I think people are people of goodwill, and I think the community, if they see their officer every day, you know, the NYPD has really um, embraced this community policing model, and they have neighborhood uh, officers that, that the community sees every day. And if you see your officer every day and that officer's doing uh, good to help you, I think it does help reinforce that respect. But it is something that I, I think all of us want you know, each other to earn every day, not just, you know, you earn it once and then you're done. You have to earn it every day. Mm. And when you think of the sort of things that perhaps you'd like to be able to do with PAL, but presently are not able to, what comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, we do this, I would just love to do it more broadly, is we have a... um, Uh, what we refer to as CAP or CAP, a college access program, where we um, take sort of uh, uh, young high school students who are interested in uh, going to college but either don't have the grades or not exactly sure what pathway 
to take. And we um, essentially provide them the resources and the tutoring and the experience to get them to college. And we have some really good ex- uh uh, experiences were graduating high school kids and sending them to college at a rate of over 90%. Um, but it's, they're two relatively small programs, one in the Bronx and one in Queens. And to me, the first thing that comes to mind is since that, that pathway to advance your education just means so much for your future. If we could, you know, rather than serving, you know, too small, uh, cohorts of children, if we could serve them, you know, throughout the city in large cohorts, that would be great. And that would also, again, encourage kids to both in sort of workforce readiness and graduate from high school, get to college. And um, that's kind of an educational program that I think we really uh, would love to do more. We We do it now and we do it pretty successfully, but I would love to just reach more kids in that program. What role do volunteers have with PAL? Uh, volunteers are a, um, a significant part of, of who we are. We tend to use them in kind of two ways. One is the kind of um, uh, uh, you know sort of regular neighborhood person that might come to a center to help out with um, a particular type of program. And the other type are, we, we often have big events. Off the summer, think summer, we have either a big carnival or a big sports day. or And some of our bigger events involving uh, kids where we have several hundred kids on a park at one time, it is a um, really helpful to have volunteers help run these kind of um, what we sometimes call culminating events uh, where Kid res, you know, a full day doing you know, a lot of different activities. So we we use volunteers in those events as well, and we get the volunteers from sort of just anyone who comes on our website and wants to volunteer. But we also create relationships with um, local businesses and 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 companies who might send ten, fifteen, or twenty of their uh, employees to participate in, in a big activity. So we use volunteers in a lot of different ways, uh, and, and it can be very helpful for our, for our young people. Well, is there a particular skill set or skill sets that you're looking for or look for or need most? I, um, well, I, I would say, well, at its core, you got to like working with kids. So <laughs> people usually get a big kick out of kids, and, and if you do, then we're the place to be. I would say one area that we're, particularly interested in is if anyone has a sort of a kind of a science or, you know, technical expertise, maybe in computers or, you know, what is con- what's referred to these days as STEM or STEAM, but educational programs Im- involving science and technology. So if you're a retired school teacher that knows something about science or computers, uh, we've worked with a couple of um, uh, people who have a particular expertise in that. Uh, that's something that I think is really, uh, you know, valuable for the young people to learn, you know, going forward. And that expertise coming from a volunteer would be wonderful for us. Mm. Fred Watts, who's executive director of the Police Athletic League, our guest on this first hour of our program on the fan uh, this morning. Pal NYC, that's all as one word, dot O-R-G, the um, website uh, for uh, Police Athletic League. Um, you've shared so much with us in our discussion. I want to thank you very much for being so kind with your time. Certainly wish you the best as we head toward 
uh, warmer weather and the summer in terms of the efforts of PAL. And let's hope for a very successful time. And also, good luck, too, with your fundraising. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. really appreciate the chance to be on your show. Interesting start to our program this morning. we got a lot more to get to. I wouldn't go anywhere if I were you. WFAN and WFAN-FM New York, a radio.com sports station. It is Rick Wolf who's along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. And good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We move into hour two of our program, and this should be a doozy of a discussion. I'm very pleased to say that um, we have one of the anchors from Court TV joining us on our program. Remember earlier this year... We were pleased on uh, Sunday morning, had a very lively hour when Vinnie Politan from uh, Court TV joined us for an hour of our program that was at the end of uh, March. Here we are, the end of May, it's Memorial Day weekend, and we are joined on our program by Seema Iyer. Seema is an anchor on Court TV, which um, recently is relaunched. Um, she has worked as an anchor and reporter for ABC and Fox affiliates before coming to Court TV. Um, she also has a background as a legal analyst previously. She was a prosecutor in New York City, uh, went on to run her own criminal law practice in Manhattan. Um, she has quite an extensive background, and I'm very pleased she's joining us on our program because we're going to cover a number of areas, including some things that are very timely in discussion. First of all, good morning. Nice to have you join us on our program. Bob, I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. A big, big fan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Court TV and the um, reestablishment or reboot of Court yes. TV, what, exact, what exactly does that mean to you? Well, we are basically Core TV 2.0. So Core TV existed for 20-ish years between, I think it was 1991 and 2009. And now we have relaunched. And the essence of Core TV is live gavel-to-gavel coverage. This Core TV is a bit different because we are on 24 hours a day. We're live for 12 hours a day, every day, from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Our lead anchor, as you mentioned, Vinny Politan, uh, he has the prime time slot from 6 to 9. But during the day, we're showing live trials. And interspersed with that, we cover other legal stories, give the headlines, tons of breaking news. Uh, we've only been on the air since May 8th, Bob, and I have done, I would say, 75% of it is breaking news. <laughs> so it's incredibly exciting. It's compelling television. It's the original reality television. And uh, I, I, the response has been tremendous 
defend it from the public. Well, you know, it's interesting you said reality television because Court TV was an aspect of reality television before, you know, this became, quote unquote, the thing. Exactly. Exactly. And what sets it apart is that you don't know what's going to happen. And it just in typical reality television shows, whether they're romance-based or family-based, we all have an idea. You know, you get your surprises, but there's nothing like a smoking gun. There's nothing like having an, a, a person on the stand uh, pointing to a perpetrator or breakdown crying or tell you who did it when you think someone else did it. There's just nothing like it. It really is absolutely jaw-dropping. And like I said, we've only been on the air since May 8th, and those type of jaw-dropping moments have happened for me already. All right. I got to ask you a question a little bit in your background. And also, sure. I always think of the people who are listening to this discussion who come from a variety of different perspectives. And what we'll do in the course of this hour, too, is somebody wants to join us in the course of the discussion and ask a question on point with what we're talking about, I'm happy to take that. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. But in your background, one of the things I want to ask you, you know, the field of law, and right. there are so many different aspects of the field of law. For young women today, are, um, are the opportunities improved or are they improving? A hundred percent. I think the field of law has been more open and provided more opportunities for women than ever before. It was definitely different than when I went to law school in the 90s and I saw that difference percolate approximately, I would say, after 2005, 2010. That's when I believe more women statistically started attending law school and you see more women in the field. Now, if you break down the types of law, you often see more women in certain areas than other areas. Uh, criminal defense is still largely male dominated. There is no question about that. Wherever you go in this country, you're going to, if you walk into a criminal courthouse, most of the lawyers in criminal defense will be men. And especially if you uh, divide that further between public defenders and criminal defense attorneys who are private practitioners, you will see that more women would go to public defense as opposed to a private. Uh, and when I say private, I mean solo practitioner. Even like myself, a majority of my cases when I was in New York were representing indigent folks, so court-appointed cases. But still, it's just mostly men. Mm. And something that I've always sort of, I think, known the answer to, but I'm going to ask you a question because, you know, very often we will see um, practitioners of law, lawyers, being interviewed. And sometimes it's, you know, a rapid-fire exchange. Right. How are they able to handle those questions? Because in, at, in, sometimes you know what the questions are kind of going to be, but other times you may get hit with something completely out of left field. A media interview would pale in comparison to an appellate 
interview or appellate questioning by a judge or even if on the trial level or any any questions by a judge. So I just don't think that's as significant in the practice of law. I think you have to worry about the actual practice of law and the information and your case. And I also think that Listen, you shouldn't I, – I don't agree with lawyers who go on television and talk about their cases. I – throughout my uh, history of being on television, I've never spoken about one of my cases ever. You have to protect the client. So I, I don't think that should be uh, a goal or a uh, – ever an outlet. You know, if you, you can find a way – if you want to get into the media, you can find a way to do it without – throwing your clients under the bus. And you will be naturally savvy with the media if you spend time in litigation. So if you're used to talking in front of a jury, if you're used to talking uh, to a judge in court, that those traits will naturally translate to make you more media savvy. Hmm. Forensic technology, we hear that term at times. What exactly is that? Forensic technology encompasses everything from cell phones to our computers, uh, to our phones, uh, even, you know, when you're talking about the cell towers. So in, in a lot of cases, whether it's investigations where law enforcement is trying to find out who did something, they will employ means of forensic technology analysis. So whether it's... Uh, finding out, you know, the cell phone towers around the location and uh, getting those records to see what towers were pinging. Uh, and a lot of times if they have suspects, then they will be able to look at their phones or look at their computers. And of course, this is a lot of Fourth Amendment hurdles that they have to uh, jump over because the Fourth Amendment protects us from unlawful search and seizure. So. If a law enforcement has uh, probable cause, has has enough to go to a judge and say, "Listen, I think that I that this person may have perpetrated this crime, and I need a search warrant for their phone, for their computer," uh, then you, you can get those things. But forensic technology has uh, absolutely changed the game in terms of being able to arrest individuals, and also prevent crime. You know, a lot of times we're talking about national security issues or, uh, you know, large-scale things like, you know, the uh, the Boston Marathon, you know, when, when that occurred and when they were trying to find uh, the Sarnayev brothers. You know, those large-scale uh, tragedies are often solved faster because of the advent of forensic technology analysis. Mm. Most interesting discussion that we are having, and we are really just beginning in this chat with uh, Seema Iyer, who is an anchor on Court TV, which is uh, recently uh, relaunched Court TV. That's all as one word dot com website um, for Court TV. Um, she has a very interesting uh, background that uh, shared earlier in our discussion. She's our guest this hour of our program on The Fan. There's many different areas where I want to go in discussion. Um, one of the things I want to do when we uh, come back, we're going to take a pause here in just a moment, 
is to talk a little bit about this fascination that people have with uh, true crime. We touched upon this with another guest about a month ago on uh, this program. I'd be interested in getting your take on that. Uh, let me sure. mention, too, after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall is by Talking Baseball after our 9 o'clock update. Here on the fan. It's Sunday morning on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in a discussion on our program on the fan this morning, this hour of it, with Seema Iyer, who is an anchor at Court TV. Uh, she's kind enough to be talking with us. We've touched upon a lot of different things. What I said we will do as well is work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at the fan. You want to join us in discussion with some of the areas that we are bringing up. Um, and I want to get your take on true crime, but I'll tell you what, let's also start with folks on the phone too. Uh, let's go first to, where are we going here? Uh, Sam on the island. Sam, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning. I never favored court TV. I'm a defense lawyer for over 50 years. And uh, court TV intimidates jurors. They used to. And I'm totally, uh, totally opposed to court TV. They're always on the side of somebody, usually. And jurors are not supposed to have a point of view. And when they realize that they're being, um, how shall I say, interviewed by court TV or exposed by court TV, jurors are supposed to be anonymous. And I feel the impartiality of a jury is threatened by court TV. That's my opinion. Seema? Yes, Sam, I completely appreciate everything you're saying. And I will start by saying, okay, the old court TV was different. And, and I think the times have changed. So number one, we do not film jurors ever. We do not film jurors. And the trial we're covering now California versus Kellen Winslow II, the former NFL player. In in this case, because the nature is of a sexual assault, uh, several sexual assaults, we're not even showing the victim. So our goal is absolutely to protect the jurors and in the victims if they don't want to be shown. Now, when it comes to your comment about, you know, we take a side, I completely disagree with that. I speak on behalf of myself and the other three anchors and our correspondents, our reporters, we do not take sides. We try, we have an open door to interview as many players as want to be interviewed, whether it's prosecutors or defense attorneys. And we try in our analysis with our guests and with each other to present both sides of the story. I, I am sorry that maybe that was your opinion about the old core TV, but certainly the new core TV, and we've just been on the air since May 8th, are making every effort to focus our analysis and our coverage on the facts and the law and nothing else and just provide information for our, our viewers and to shine a light into the justice system. Well, that's the whole idea, and that's what I disagree with. It shouldn't you don't have a want light. A light to it doesn't shine. need a light shined on it. That's what it you doesn't. Have to do it, wait, wait, wait! This is America. <laughs> we have the greatest justice system in the world. Uh, we're a democracy. You don't want people to know what's going on inside the courtroom. Well, if you're really impartial, that would be fine, I guess. 
but I think juries are intimidated when they know that they're on a, when they're exposed. But, but Sam, I, that's the, jurors, the whole idea of juries being sort of Sam, anonymous. The jurors know because that they are not being they're on the, on the, They no, don't want the jurors, they, they, they don't want to be. They want they don't want to be on the popular cause all the time. They're the not jurors supposed are to not be. being filmed. They're the supposed to be totally impartial. The jurors I never know find not that these TV programs are impartial. Because they, we're not a TV program. We're not a TV program. So they're trying we to side with a showing trial. Trying to side with a cause. We and, don't I mean, have that's a just cause. my feeling. And if you interviewed most defense lawyers, they'd tell you the same thing. Well, we have a lot of defense lawyers that come on as guests. I was a defense lawyer for 15 years. Some of my colleagues were defense lawyers, and because of the parameters that we instill to protect jurors and victims and the process, we have had only support from the legal community. And we hope that we have your support, Sam. So give us a shot. I'll bet that if most most defense lawyers would be in my position. But that's my position. All right. Well, I hope you'll give us a chance. I hope you'll watch. What I think is the position of most defense lawyers. Maybe other people will come on and have an opposite position, but I doubt it. Sam, thank you for your call this morning. Thanks, Sam. All right. Thank you for your patience on the phone as well. You want to join us in discussion? 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. Now, I want to get back to this point that I was raising before we pause for update and messages and talk a little bit about this whole true crime fascination because um, it's both amazing and at times, I'm going to be very bluntly honest and say, a bit disturbing. Sure. How fascinated we can get with aspects of these true crime presentations. What's really behind this? What is behind it is one word, why. People want to know why criminals do what they do. People want to know what drives someone to kill five women in two days or to rape 50 women and, uh, and then kill them and hide their bodies. People want to understand how those outside the norm make their decisions. And it is fascinating. It is fascinating to the, you know us regular folk who just go to work every day and are law-abiding citizens and try to, you know, drive within the speed limit and pay our taxes and pay our rent, how others function outside of what is appropriate. And it's, it's you know, when people engage in the bizarre Spectators want to know why. That's it. I think that's the simplest way to explain the fascination. Now, I'd be remiss also if I did not ask you about the news that broke at the end of this week surrounding Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, big news. Um, I'll ask an open-ended question here because... Basically, the news was that 
Harvey Weinstein and some of his accusers, as I understand it, reportedly have reached a tentative, what's termed a $44 million deal. Just hearing that, what was your reaction? I was surprised that they did reach a deal. I thought this that litigation would go on further, but uh, there are so many various pieces of litigation with respect to Weinstein in terms of federal actions, state actions, criminal actions, civil actions. There's a class action in there. There's different accusations, both civilly and criminally. So uh, this is just one part of the puzzle. And it, it's a lot less, Bob, than what the victims wanted in this uh, New York attorney general action. You know, the, the original, uh, I think, proposal was a victim's fund worth up to $90 million. So this settlement for 44 is far less. So what happens with this now? Okay, under the proposed terms, and basically just so your listeners understand, like no one's talking. You know, the attorney general's office hasn't given a statement yet. The plaintiffs haven't given a statement. Uh, Weinstein hasn't given a statement. But under this proposed deal, about $30 million of the 44 would go to a pool of plaintiffs. Again, don't know exactly who they are. Can, I have some idea, but don't know. Uh, and that pool of plaintiffs include victims, alleged victims rather, creditors of Mr. Weinstein's former studio, as well as some former employees. <clears throat> and then the remainder would, uh, I, I think, go to uh, for legal fees, so lawyers, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And in reality, this is, if I understand this correctly, this also is resolving what was basically a civil rights lawsuit that came from the state attorney general's office in New York? Yes, that's what's being reported. Again, I I don't know all the details because they're not out, and the New York attorney general has not given a statement. Right. Uh, But that is is the understanding. That's correct. Now, is Court TV going to be covering the criminal trial if that proceeds? Oh, yes, we are, Bob. We are all over. We've been prepping for this Weinstein trial, which is scheduled to begin in September. We've been basically preparing since at least I got to Court TV in February. So it's a huge part of uh, our programming intention. That's right. Now, we don't know if there's going to be cameras in the courtroom, but however the trial proceeds, our plan is to cover it gavel to gavel. Can you affect it? Can Court TV effectively cover a case, cover a trial when there's not cameras in the courtroom? Great question, Bob. I'm so glad you're asking this. And yes, we can. And I think the trial we're covering now, California versus Kellen Winslow II, the former NFL player, is a perfect example. And not, we do have cameras in the courtroom. However, the main witnesses are all Jane Doe's, all alleged sexual assault victims. Uh, and we are able to film, you know, whether it's just their hands and, and their testimony. Now, for Harvey Weinstein, if in fact, there are no cameras in the courtroom, we will still have a team of uh, reporters and correspondents there, and we will be able to inform the public what is happening, minute to minute. 
And no one else is going to be doing that, Bob. No one else. You'll get, you know, maybe your few minutes of highlights of what happened today in court with Harvey Weinstein from other uh, networks or local news, but you're not going to get the play-by-play that's happening inside the courtroom anywhere else besides court TV. And think about this. You know, Harvey Weinstein has changed all of the accusers, the whole uh, scandal has changed what we now know as sexual victimization in this country. The Me Too movement started in 2006, but it really did not uh, get any groundswell until, sadly, Harvey Weinstein's accusers came forward. And now the Me Too movement has become a force to be reckoned with for anyone who appreciates feminism or support of victims, and no longer are women feeling, hopefully, that they have to sit in silence. You know, people who've been harassed, assaulted, uh, the, the power dynamic that Mr. Weinstein represents occurred in Hollywood, everything has changed. And so we need as much exposure to that trial, and uh, whether it's for, for the country to move on or for closure, uh, or for change, but Core TV is going to cover it as, as better than anyone else is. I'll tell you that. Okay. Seema Iyer, who is an anchor at Court TV, is our guest uh, this hour of our program on The Fan. What I want to do is talk when we come back a little bit about um, this uh, your coverage of the Kellen Winslow the second the trial, um, what that has been like as well, and... Um, cover a couple other things too so many different things that were on my plate heading into our discussion today Um, wonderful let me just mention as well after our eight o'clock update rick wolf is along with the sports edge program ed randall's talking baseball after our nine o'clock update and you know you want to join us in discussion 877-337-6666 is our phone number uh here at the fan we'll also probably um before we get wrapped up today talk a little bit about since it's memorial day weekend um some this crackdown on um, driving while intoxicated and the sobriety checkpoints, too, and get some of uh, Seema's thoughts on that. Take a pause in our discussion this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan, and Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after our 8 o'clock update. We're in a discussion with an anchor from Court TV. Seema Iyer has joined us on our program, CourtTV.com, the website for the Court TV uh, relaunch. And uh, Seema shared an awful lot with us in our discussion this morning. Uh, thus far, what I said we'll do as well, try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. Uh, let's see, where are we going here on the phone first? At um, 877-337-6666 as I stare at the screen. Um, going first to uh, Herman in Stamford, Connecticut. Herman, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Yes, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I am thing. listening to your... Uh guest, and I just reel off some responses here. As far as uh, the interviews of lawyers off court TV, <clears throat> this is a plague that's all over the news where pundits with a hook in someone get to be spokesmen for the legal community. They're unprepared. They're never, uh, they're, they're basically off the cuff and it's, it's very misleading. Number two, as far as the, the true crime, the only experience I know 
is a case in which my office, the Manhattan DA's office, handled back in 1968 under Frank Hogan, the only non-political DA in the world. Hogan's office cleared a defendant from a very horrible killing of two career girls. It was covered on true crime, and it was made to look that Hogan was the villain and someone else did the clearing, which, again, is appalling. Number three, I think there's an area which has to be gone into by the media, and that is the conduct and the police practices on the street of officers, particularly when it comes to automobile stops. I can tell you that people of black origin, African-Americans, are being abused in that they don't know their rights. And there are more of these people being locked up after vehicle stops, despite these stops being outlawed and prohibited by the Supreme Court of the United States. And I will tell you this, it's not just the police. The courts are ignorant of this and are not doing their job. And after 50 years, I am appalled that the judiciary has to basically be re-educated on this. These are simple cases that African-American young kids are doing time because of violations of the Fourth Amendment. And something has got to be done about this, and I don't know who's going to do it. But anyway, that's what I have to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for your patience on the phone as well. Seema? Okay, Herman, let's go. All right. So number one, I take severe umbrage to your classification that myself and my fellow anchors, reporters, and correspondents are unprepared. We, I, it's, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'm on doing radio. We work around the clock. We delve our entire lives into the trials and the cases that we cover. We are the most prepared team i dare say, in news and television news, and we are lawyers and we are journalists. So when we put something on the air, it is uh, an extension of our skilled intelligence and vast preparation. Uh, Number two, as for your 1968 uh, Hogan reference, Sorry, Herman, I was born in 1971 and didn't graduate law school until 1996, so I really can't respond to that. And as for number three, your reference to the auto stops, I do not disagree with you for your uh, opinion in terms of uh, people not knowing their rights. That's a very valid uh, observation. And part of Core TV's mission is to explain to people what the legal process is. Bring them inside the courtroom every single day. Let them hear about the law and how it pertains to them and how it affects their life. So we are hoping that part of what we are accomplishing at Court TV is to inform viewers so they understand their rights, whether it's uh, in a car or in their home or walking down the street. That's it. I'm done. Hopefully that um, is sufficient in terms of a response for Herman. Thank you for your call this morning, Herman. Uh, Let's do one more call here from uh, Bob in Little Ferry, New Jersey, who's been waiting for a while. Bob, good morning. Welcome to the fan. 
Good morning, Bob, and good morning, Seema. Good morning, Seema, Bob. These last two, these uh, last two calls were obviously from the uh, the legal industry, if you know what I mean, and they have uh, strong opinions. But <laughs> yes, you know what can I tell you? But I think that <laughs> really what you're doing is exactly what you just got done saying. You're exposing the whole court proceedings to us, the lay people, of what goes on. And thus, if someone is uh, not uh, represented uh, correctly or whatever, it'll be pointed out. And uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful idea. Now, one thing I would like to say, Seema, is this, and perhaps I can give you an idea of a particular kind of case uh, to put on there, because obviously you guys will be able to select what cases you want to put on the air. Yeah, I love some ideas, Bob. It's Memorial Day. I I think personally, uh, let me take two seconds to say that I think kids about 11 or 12 years old, they should be packed into buses. And instead of going to an amusement park for the class trip or something, they should go to one of these military cemeteries. And when the buses get out and the three buses, let's say, and the kids get out of the bus, I want them to look at thousands of white crosses. Talk about uh, an emotional, uh, you know, uh, dramatic and sobering sight to see yeah. that. And then I want the teacher to tell these kids about that the lives that we live today are partly responsible for all these people in the armed forces that gave their lives to preserve our way of life. And then give them a poppy and have them each go out to a, a grave at random to put a poppy down and then make a committee of the kids and have a committee so that they could write up something about their visit to share with the student body when they get back after the trip. The only little catch to this is because Memorial Day is at the end of May, perhaps they can do this, you know, during the season uh, because it's it's not logistically possible, I think, to probably go out on around Memorial Day. Now, after saying that, and thank you for allowing me to say that, I think what you can do, Seema, is when the veterans come back today right. from Afghanistan, Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. They get in trouble. Sure. And we're shocked. And we hear things sometimes in the paper about, oh, well, you know, this and, you know, he didn't know where to go and this and that. And they commit crimes or something. I would love you to put some of these cases on the air to get a veteran who, you know, their, their life was at stake, you know, in combat or whatever. And when they came out, the fact that they were probably denied a lot of opportunities and thus did something that they shouldn't have done. I would love to hear that case on the air to see both sides take a position on it, that one, legally they committed a crime, but number two, I want the defense to explain to us, the audience, about why perhaps they committed those crimes. I think that is a splendid idea, Bob. I will definitely uh, share that. And it reminds me, uh, and the name escapes me, but uh, there was the vet, I think he was portrayed in a movie, and, uh, you know, he suffered from severe PTSD. And I, I think these are issues that the public needs to learn about. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that sometimes people do commit crimes because their mental state is altered, uh, whether it's from trauma, such as war, or something like domestic violence. So that is definitely part of our mission is to bring all sides of the story to the public. So thank exactly. You we're, we're interested in both sides. We're interested in the prosecution, but also naturally sometimes we'll be sympathetic to the defense. Of but course, by saying of course. we can make an opinion and, and go from there, sure. 
Interesting well, idea, thank Bob. thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You have a great day. You too, Nub. Thank you. And thank you for your uh, suggestion about um, Memorial Day and the significance uh, of that and trying to drive that point home for young people, too. Um, yeah. Now, can you, in a relatively short period of time, sort of give us a, a breakdown of what this Kellen Winslow the second trial is all about? Absolutely. So Kellen Winslow the second, uh, the trial resumes on Tuesday. There are five accusers. They are all named Jane Doe. So we have Jane Doe number one to Jane Doe number five. Jane Doe number one, two, and four involve rape allegations, whereas three and five are more uh, indecent exposure type of allegations. So, and the Jane Doe one, two, three, and five are all within the 2018-2019 time period. So uh, these are current allegations of when Mr. Winslow was approximately 34 to 35 years old. And the women involved in those allegations, the, the more timely allegations between 2018 and 2019, they're all ranging in the ages of 54 years old to 77 years old. And whether, you know, in one instance, he's alleged to have uh, sexually assaulted a homeless woman. Another instance, a transient woman. In another instance, he's ex- alleged to have exposed himself to a neighbor. In another instance, while he was out on bond, uh, he is alleged to have exposed himself to a woman at a gym in a hot tub, a crunch fitness center. And then, Bob, the most startling of all of these allocations, perhaps to some, is that Kellen Winslow is alleged to have sexually assaulted a woman when he was 19 and she was 17. And that's Jane Doe number four. And Jane Doe number four came forward to the authorities after Jane Doe one, two, and three did. And she basically said, this happened to me 15 years ago. And this is a perfect example of when we're talking about Harvey Weinstein, when we're talking about the power in numbers of when women come forward, they give other women the strength to stop hiding in silence and they give them a voice to come forward and say, this happened to me too. And that is in essence, the Kellen Winslow trial. So we pick up our live gavel to gavel coverage on Tuesday at 9am. What's it like covering the trial? Oh, it's so thrilling. I can't even tell you. It is like bombshell after bombshell. Uh, the victims have been incredibly uh, emotion-provoking for all of us, and there's so much rich detail. The lawyers are excellent. It is just incredibly compelling television. And right now, you know, Core TV is still on, and just so your, your uh, listeners know, Bob, we, you can go, well, Core TV is on broadcast, we're on cable, over the air, over the top. We are every, on everything from Google Play to Roku to Apple to Amazon. Uh, and you can go to CoreTV.com. We stream 24 hours a day. We're on right now or we're on your television. And also there's a Core TV app, which is, oh, God, it is really, really a snazzy app. So you can watch us on your phone wherever you go. Now, I mentioned earlier this is Memorial Day weekend. One of the features of this weekend are these DWI crackdown uh, checkpoints. 
checking on sobriety. What's the best advice you can get or give to somebody if they're pulled over for driving under the influence or reckless driving this weekend? Don't talk to the cops about a lawyer present. Don't ever talk to the cops about a lawyer present. Why not? Because you're going to say something. Number one, if you're in an inebriated state, you, you may not have complete function of what you're about to say. You can't censor your statement. And number two, you need someone who has the capacity to understand your rights there to protect them. Uh, it is a very vulnerable area of law, DWI, because if you do the, you know, the walking test, that could be helped, held against you. If you don't do the little, I, I forgive me, I'm mis, uh, mischaracterizing, you know, the, the sobriety test, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could put yourself in, in more trouble. Now, here's here's the thing. If, you, if you're asked to get out of the car and you have to do that kind of walk, touch your nose, all those stand on one foot tests, you have to do it. You have to comply. Right. So it, what gets more dangerous is when you do the breathalyzer. Because if you don't do the breathalyzer, that could be held against you. The breathalyzer needs to be taken within a certain time period for its validity to uh, stick. And if if you my best advice is you have to call a lawyer. You know, I, I just, I assume, especially whether it's reckless driving or DWI, these are things that will impact your license, your insurance, uh, your criminal history. You just you get a lawyer as soon as you can. So, and just tell the cops, I want a lawyer, because if they have to provide you with one, they will. Seema Iyer, who is an anchor for Court TV, our guest this hour of our program on the fan. As I said, it would be a lively hour. It certainly was. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Have a great day. Wonderful discussion. Thank you for joining us on our program. And thank you to those of you who participated in the discussion this morning. I'll just give you a big hint. Next Sunday morning, you want to be here starting at 6 o'clock. We got a doozy of a guest coming up and quite a show next Sunday morning. Speaking of quite a show, after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge. And then, well, (laughs) things change somewhat. A different kind of wind blows in. Ed Randall will be by. He'll be talking baseball here on The Fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.